Good morning, everybody. My name is Barbara. I'm an alcoholic. Grateful to be here this morning and be sober. And I appreciate you moving the microphone. I had the whole thing pictured. I was going to try to pull it down. It was going to come off of my hand, roll around on the... I don't know if anybody else is like that, but I can always just see how everything's going to come apart instead of coming together. I'd like to thank the committee very much for the gift of this experience. This has been such a wonderful experience for me and and, um, and John, and, and I know we're really going to enjoy the rest of the weekend, <laughs> at least I will, and um, particularly to thank Bill, who I had, suspect had a great deal to do with me being on this program, and what a program. How about that speaker last night? Wow. That was fabulous. I... Uh, like to say that my home group is the Clarkston 12-step group here in town and, and uh, thank the folks that came all the way out from Clarkston this morning early on a Saturday to support me. I have a group of faithful friends over here and, and that's something that this program has given me that I, I always wanted and uh, never had. Never, ever, ever. And it just never ceases to, to make me extremely grateful for the fact that we don't do this alone. I don't think I'd do it if we did it alone. I don't think I would have wanted to. And uh, my sobriety date is March 27th, 1984, which on this program makes me a newcomer. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think I'm the only one on the program. No, there's, there's one other person on the program with less than 35 years of sobriety. I am the only one on the program with less than 20 years of sobriety. So just to tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from, uh, um, Sponsors are such a wonderful thing. Uh, if there's anybody here that doesn't have a sponsor, I, I understand. I've, I've been there, and I'm so grateful that I have a sponsor today because when I don't have a sponsor, I'm just cheating myself. But one of the things that uh, sponsors do is, is they help me to, uh, to keep, keep myself in, in place. And uh, I was at a roundup not too long ago, and I ran into a sponsor in the hallway, and uh, the sponsor said to me, uh, wasn't that a great speaker? I said, yeah, that was a great speaker. It's a wonderful speaker, famous, you know, one of these that goes all over AA talking all the time. And I'd listened to his tapes for years. And I have to admit that I was, I had had sort of a rough day at work and I had slept through most of his talk. But um, I said, yeah, that's a great speaker, terrific speaker. And, and he is. He's a fabulous speaker. And, uh, and then the sponsor said to me, so what did you learn from the talk? And I, oh, oh my God, I didn't know I was going to be quizzed. And, uh, and, uh, and I didn't want to admit that I'd slept through most of it. So I tried to think of something from the beginning of his talk that I had actually heard. And, um, because, you know, this is a program of rigorous honesty. So, um, and, and I was able to remember something and I shared that with the sponsor and got out. And, but ever since then, whenever I'm at a roundup, I always think of that. I always, and afterwards I thought, isn't that, isn't that excellent? You know, that I have someone in my life who can walk up to me in the hallway and say, and what did you learn from the speaker? Isn't that excellent? That is what I need. That is absolutely excellent. And ever since then, whenever I'm at a roundup and whenever there's a speaker, I always try to answer that question. So last night I was really listening to our speaker for the, the answer to the quiz question. And, uh, and, uh, and I particularly took to heart uh, what he shared about having a choice. That was one of the uh, things I didn't get right away when I got here, that my life was my choice and that I had the gift of having a choice and, uh, and how important it is that we have the ability to make a choice, make choices, many choices. And I've, I've had the opportunity to make a number of choices 
since I've been here. The one thing that happened to me when I got here is I, I, I it's, it's interesting, I, I got so much more choices, but I didn't get to decide when I was going to have to make choices, or, and I didn't get to decide what the options were going to be when I had to make those choices. They were always clear. It was either do this and get to stay, or do that and probably have to go. And I never knew when those choices were going to come. But at least I knew I was making them. And before I got here, I made choices and never knew it. I always thought that I was just the way I had to be. I mean, that's just how it was. I did what I had to do, and I just never realized that I was even making choices. But uh, uh, when we read how it works at, at, at our group, it tells me that uh, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. So and since I'm so new in the program, I think I should probably stick to the formula. <laughs> so um, a little bit about what I used to be like. Um, when I got here to this program in 1984, I was uh, sort of a, a, a large black blob. I was... Uh, I was heavy, I was dark, I, was, uh, I had this sort of black cloud that traveled with me everywhere I went, sort of a cold, dark energy that I was wrapped in that I used to try to make me invisible. I didn't want anyone to see me. I was draped in heavy black clothing at all times because I thought that would keep you from seeing me. And, uh, and I, 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 I was very sad and depressed. And, um, and I'd worked hard on that for about 17 years. <laughs> so I really had it down. I mean, I had the makeup, the clothes, the, you know, the, I knew how to do it. And uh, it started, uh, that, that sort of set of feelings is something that I've had to, to do a lot of inventory work on because, of course, that's what I'm here recovering from is alcoholism. And uh, that was my alcoholism was that whole person that I brought here. And uh, so in inventory work, I've discovered a couple of things that, that led me to be the person that I was. And a lot of it I don't understand at all. I just have to know that that's me. I don't know if I was born that way or if there are other things that, that caused it. I don't know. But there were a couple of things that I've been able to identify in inventory work. Are we feeding back? That um, I was married to a sound man for a while. <laughs> I was married to a lot of different people. But, uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, one of the things that happened to me was, um, was some things in my family. I came here with a lot of... Well, it, it talks about something else and how it works that was really important to me in my recovery. It says that we tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil. So... Um, I came here with a lot of old ideas that I've had to try to discover in inventory work. We are feeding back. And um, one of those old ideas was that my parents uh, didn't really uh, care about me. They, they, they didn't, that, you know, that I had, had sort of not lived up to their standards, that uh, they didn't want me around. I don't know if I would have said they didn't love me. I, I certainly didn't experience that love. I probably wouldn't have been able to, to come right out and say they didn't love me because it would have been hard for me to, to uh, contradict them since they claimed that they did. But I would have told you in a heartbeat that I didn't see it or feel it. And, um, and it's been important in, in recovery for me to learn how wrong I was about that and, and to look at where I got those ideas. And it, it, it started with just uh, sim the simple uh, circumstances of my family. I'm the oldest of six children. My mother had those six children in seven years. 
and uh, and I had the re very real experience of uh, being the center of the universe and then being uh, no longer the center of the universe uh, when my sister Sue was born who is still the sister I have the most complicated relationship with not terribly surprising to me but um, I was talking to my mother not too long ago. It was uh, eight or nine years ago when my sisters, I have four perfect sisters, and they were all having their children, as, as you, it's time to do after you've established your successful career. And uh, I was talking to my mother about these girls, about uh, how hard it must be for them, successful career women, to start all over with this new thing with having babies. They had all just had their first baby. And uh, my mother was sitting there with one of those beautiful babies in her lap, and my mother was just glowing. And uh, I, I got to see what, what, what my mother's relationship with babies was like, and that helped me to understand what had happened to me. But she also said something that helped me to understand. I said, it must be so hard for them, this enormous change, having a baby. And she said, the first one's not that hard. She said, it's the second one that's hard because you have to set the first one aside. And I was so appreciative of her validating that uh, feeling for me, even though she didn't. She said it like she didn't even know who she was talking to. Uh, and she just went on to, you know, say a few more things. I had to get up and go in the bathroom and cry because it was so real for me that when she said that, that feeling that I had been set aside. And um, so I became a, very much of a person who was trying to recapture what had what I had lost, and I, I was I was very much the good girl. All my life, I wanted to have the approval of my parents. I was, and, I, and when I got here, I wanted your approval. And everywhere I go, I want everybody else's approval. And that's something else I've had to deal with in recovery, is to recover from the need for approval. But um, I, I, I was, because I was trying to recapture that, uh, that what I had lost, I, I was a good kid. And I went to school, and I did good in school, and I did everything they wanted me to do. And when I came here, I did that all over again with you. Um, but uh, then I had another uh, tragedy in my life. Now, I, I do realize that there are people out there in the universe who have these same experiences and do not experience them as tragedy, okay? And, and I also know from, from people that I've sponsored and friends that I've had in this program that there are people who come to this program with real tragedies. And I know for a fact that I did not. I did not come here with any real tragedies, but I did come here with a tremendous amount of sadness. And that was because I had experienced my whole life as a series of tragedies, even though no one on the outside would probably have, have seen it that way. But I, I did have to tell the truth about the fact that I experienced those things as tragedies and carried around a tremendous amount of sadness as a result of it that I did not want to let go of because it was me. So... When I was 13 years old, my father was transferred from Massachusetts, where we lived our whole lives, to Cincinnati, Ohio. In Massachusetts at that time, everybody like us, as you might have expected, was Catholic. Everybody. There were Polish Catholics, Italian Catholics, French Catholics, you know, every kind, every kind of everyone that we knew was Catholic. So there wasn't enough room in Catholic schools for all the Catholic children to go, so we went to public school. And I had gone to a very, Massachusetts schools are really excellent. They're excellent today. And um, I had gone to a really good school, and I was in special classes for smart kids, and I really thought I was hot. And um, we wrote poetry and read Shakespeare and learned foreign languages, and I was in the sixth grade. So it was a really extraordinary uh, educational opportunity, and I really thought I was something. 
When we were transferred to Cincinnati, my parents discovered, lo and behold, Cincinnati is full of Protestants, uh, so there's plenty of room in the Catholic schools for all the little Catholic children to go, and so we went, whether we liked it or not. My parents felt that it was their obligation to provide us with that. And so uh, I went from this uh, very advanced educational setting, remembering always, of course, that my mission in life now is to get my parents' approval, and the primary way that I do this is by being good in school, so school was the center of my universe. I learned to read when I was three. I was always a very good student. It was the center of my life, so now they've put me in this other school, and uh, for those of you who did not have the opportunity to have a parochial education in the... uh, in the early 1960s, it was before federal assistance came to the parochial schools. And at that time, many of the uh, things were not as they are today. I know the parochial schools are probably better than the public schools today. I don't know. But um, at that time, the teachers, most of them were not degreed. The curriculum was not uh, supervised by anybody. But we had religion three times a day and science once a week and things like that. And, uh, and the nuns still wore all the black stuff all the way down to the ground. It was really scary looking to me because I wasn't used to it. But that's not the tragedy. The tragedy was that I discovered that there was something terribly wrong with me. I, I, I'd always felt like there must be something wrong with me. Why else would my mother not pay any attention to me? But I never knew what it was. And I found out what it was because they told me. They told me daily for two years on a regular basis. And they weren't very nice about it. It wasn't just the the students either, it was also the nuns. And what they told me was that I was fat, I was ugly, I was not fit for human companionship, Um, I was ridiculed and tortured for two years, and when I went to one of the nuns for support, I didn't know that's what I was doing, I was just crying, and she said that I might want to consider the religious life because very frequently unattractive girls found it hard to find husbands. <laughs> that has not been my experience, by the way. <laughs> working on number three at the moment. But uh, I hadn't had a drink yet at this time, but boy, I sure needed one. And if I had found alcohol at this time, uh, I, would have, I, would, I would have been grateful for the Savior. Uh, at this time, I know that I was alcoholic because of what happened next. I started killing myself. Suicide became uh, something that I, I tried on a regular basis. My parents don't believe in prescription medication, so all we had in the house was aspirin. So all I managed to do was get this ringing in my ears. But um, my parents finally understood that I was in serious pain. They didn't think it was... They didn't understand why I was in so much pain, but they finally got it, that it was real. And they offered me the opportunity to transfer to the public schools. And I did not go. And if that is not alcoholism, I do not know what is. I'm killing myself. I'm so miserable. I'm offered the opportunity for a a way out, and I'm so afraid of what might be there. You know, I know what's here, even though it's killing me. But what, I don't know what's over there, so I won't go. And, and I, so I, when I look at that, I, I, I seriously believe that I brought an alcoholic to my first drink. And that that's why it was, uh, it was such a wonderful experience for me when I found alcohol. I started drinking when I was in high school. I started drinking when I started dating. I wasn't old enough to buy anything. 
and uh, and I did manage to, uh, to to work on the outside to the point where I got a boyfriend and and I got this is where I, I, I found one of my oldest old ideas now that I, you have convinced me that I'm 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 wrong that I'm not okay as, a, as particularly as a girl that I, because I don't look good and and therefore I'm not I don't have any friends. I don't have any relationships with other human beings. I don't have the ability to connect with another human being at this point because I'm so sure that, that you won't like me and why should you because I'm ugly. That, um, and I was convinced of that. I was absolutely convinced of that. But I thought it was because of the outside. So here came one of my favorite old ideas was let's fix up the outside and then the inside will be okay. And I worked that program for about 13 years with let's work on the outside and somehow that will make the inside okay. And it never worked and I never got it. I would do something. I would lose all the weight you know, or I'd, I'd do something with my hair. I'm always doing something with my hair. Or I'd do some, or I'd get a college degree, or I'd you know get a socially acceptable boyfriend, or I'd learn how to dress, or whatever. You know, I learned, I figured out a lot of things to do to the outside, and I'd do one of them, and I'd feel good for about ten seconds, and then all the old feelings of of I'm not okay would come right back, and I think, okay, well now what do I have to do? And I and I think of something new. And I'd start on something else. And so, well, I guess I need another, I guess I need a, another master's degree. I guess I need a, you know, this isn't the right husband. Or, you know, maybe uh, it's the right husband, but now I need to lose the weight. I mean, it always was me. I always blamed me for the fact that I didn't feel okay. But I never got it that I was broken on the inside. And I never tried to get any help for the inside because I didn't know that that's where the damage was. I went to college because that's what we were supposed to do. Um, I picked out a college where I thought I would finally fit in because everybody was weird. And in the 60s, there was plenty of that going around. And um, I went to a school that was uh, was uh, famous for being sort of a, a 60s kind of place. And this is where I discovered that alcohol was my drug of choice. Now, I know that this is an AA meeting, and, and um, but I, 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 this is an, this is a, was a big part of my story because I'm an approval junkie. I'm somebody that wants your approval. I want to do whatever it is to fit in. I will do anything since the experience that I had in the seventh and eighth grade where I did not fit in and was tortured as a result of it. I'll do anything to fit in normally. And I went to this college, and uh, drinking alcohol just didn't fit in. That's not what people were doing where I went to college in the 60s. There was lots more interesting things going on than alcohol. They were, they were uh, having other experiences. And, and, and I tried some of those other experiences, and it just didn't do for me what alcohol did. And that's when I started realizing that alcohol was actually doing something for me. I hadn't realized it up to that point. It was something that you did whenever you got a chance. But all the kids around me were doing it every time they got a chance, too. So I didn't realize it was doing something for me until I had to make a choice. And then I realized that I chose alcohol because it was doing something for me. And I started to realize what it was doing. Because when I didn't have it, when I tried some of these other experiences, they didn't do for me what alcohol did. And so I started to see I needed alcohol. And what I needed it for was so that I could be with you. 
And the reason that I needed alcohol to be with you was because if I didn't have something to drink, I had these voices inside my head screaming at me. They won't like you. You're fat. You're ugly. They don't want you. Leave. They hate you. They're laughing at you. And these voices would be screaming in my head until I took a drink or two or three. And then they would go away. And I could be with you. And we could sit around and talk about how we should be studying. Or we could go to class. We could do whatever it was we needed to do. And I could do it just like I was okay because I'd had a drink or two or three and I was normal. I drank to be normal. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, then I'd, I'd drink a little bit more than normal. And, <laughs> and uh, we'd have interesting experiences. But they used to make fun of me because I was a drinker. But I came in handy. Uh, sometimes it was it was handy to have somebody that didn't want to do acid because you had to have somebody to to babysit. Whenever somebody was doing acid where I went to school, you always had somebody that was a tripping partner. And I was uh, everybody's favorite tripping partner because all you had to do was buy me a six-pack of beer and I was happy. So that's cheap, right? And, uh, and I would sit with you all night and I would play the same Mothers of Invention album over and over and over <laughs> if that was what you wanted. Or I would get you a pizza, and then I would take it away when it scared you. And, <laughs> I became famous for this. I had a purpose. It was wonderful. But, uh, but I wasn't good socially because alcohol wasn't something that was done socially. So I was always the one in the corner with a bottle of uh, Boone's Farm or something. I even got in trouble one night for drinking the, uh, the wine that was supposed to go in the water pipe. But, uh, you know, I didn't have anything else to drink. And there were all these people. So, you know, I can't be with people if I don't have something to drink. And that's what I learned is that if I'm, I hate me so much that I can't be with you unless I have something to drink. And I drank and went to class. I mean, I drank to do things. And I was supposed to be a teacher when I got out of this school. But, and, and, you know, alcohol has never had to take anything away from me. I have always just given it. Gladly, and not even realized I was making a choice. I came to Atlanta in 1973, and I was supposed to be a French teacher. I had lived in Paris for a while, and, and uh, I was supposed to be, and I had strong feelings about teaching. I felt called to teach. I really felt called to teach. You know, we had vocations in those days. And, <laughs> and I felt called to teach, and I was supposed to be a teacher. And I moved to Atlanta because I knew my parents didn't want me around. I've always had this thought that my parents didn't want me around. And so when I got out of college, I knew my parents didn't want me around. And so I came to Atlanta because uh, this guy that I used to go out drinking with was moving down here. So why not come? And I got the, the uh, you know, a great deal of thought always went into my life-changing decisions at that time of my life. And... Um, I got the teacher's applications, and I think it was for Cobb County and maybe uh, Fulton County, I think. I think. I was living out at Six Flags at that time, so I think that's where the applications were from, Cobb County and, and uh, Fulton County. And I was going to apply for a teaching job because that's what I was supposed to do. On those teaching applications, it asked the question, do you drink? Do you smoke? And I thought... They don't want me. I'm not what they want at all. I'm not good enough to teach in these schools. I drink. I smoke. They don't want me. I'm bad. I'm wrong. 
I'm not the right person. So I got a job as a cocktail waitress. <laughs> because I knew I was good enough to do that. And I felt like that was where I belonged. I was, I was happy there. I really felt like I belonged. And all of the people who understand that are in rooms like this. All of the people, and I guarantee you, my parents were not among people who understood that decision. And I didn't even know it was a decision. I thought I was just doing what I had to do. I didn't even know it was a choice. I spent 10 years in what we like to call the hospitality industry, um, including uh, learning how to be a bartender and finally a, a manager. And I ran a couple of rock and roll nightclubs in underground Atlanta for a while and collected a couple of husbands along the way. And, uh, but drinking every day. And isn't it the right business to be in to do that? I mean, I didn't even notice my drinking. It's the easiest way in the world not to, is to spend your entire day around it. I mean, I didn't even notice it. I mean, I knew I was an alcoholic and they weren't because once I started, I couldn't stop. But I didn't know that that meant anything. I didn't, I just, it was like, oh, okay, well, you know, so I just need to, to drink every day and I'll be fine. And I never realized that what was really wrong with me had anything to do with the drinking. I knew I was crazy. Because no matter what I did to the outside, I was still committing suicide. I mean, I got down to a size five. I mean, if that won't fix you, I mean, wouldn't you think? I can't even imagine what I, what, I can't imagine that today. But, uh, and I was still killing myself. So I knew I was crazy. I knew it. I tried to run off the top of a six-story parking garage and, uh, I guess it was about 1979. And would have made it if my then husband hadn't tackled me. And didn't even remember it. I was completely in a blackout. I was a blackout drinker for the last 10 or so years that I drank. And I wasn't a blackout drinker for like days where you wake up in another city or anything. I just never knew how I got to bed, if I got to bed. I never knew how I got to wherever I got to. And because I was a blackout drinker, I started drinking at home more. In 1980, I decided that I got to get out of this business. Drinking every day like this is killing me. And if I just wasn't around it all the time, obviously I wouldn't drink so much. Right? I, you know, forgetting that that's why I got the job in the first place was so that I could drink every day and it would be okay because it wasn't okay to be a teacher if you were a drinker. I was I chose to be a drinker instead of a teacher. And and but now I'm I'm thinking it's the business that's making me a drinker. That's or at least I won't drink so much. You see, the, never, the problem never was that I drank. The problem was, and my parents would have told you this, and I think my father still believes it, the problem was that I was crazy. And that when I drank too much, the insanity would come out and take control and I wouldn't be able to control the insanity. So if I could just not drink so much, then everything would be okay because I could keep my insanity under control. That was sort of the thought about me. That's, if you told ask anybody in my family what was wrong with me, that's what they would have told you. So, and I thought so too. So I thought, well, I'll get, a, I'll get a straight job. I'll get a straight job. So I went back to college. Isn't that what you do? You go back to school, get another degree. And <laughs> I can always go to school. And um, I got a regular office job working eight to five. This is hysterical for me. I've never worked in an office in my life. I didn't even know how to work a two-button phone. And here I am, I'm a grown-up, sitting at a desk in a regular office with guys in suits. You know, I hadn't been wearing blue jeans for the last five years down underground in this rock and roll nightclub. And this is going to fix me. 
obviously. <laughs> and um, it only took me four years to make it to the program after that. I'm grateful for that. Um, obviously, it didn't work. I think it helped some, actually, because uh, it made it clearer. Not being able to drink all day made it clearer how uncomfortable I was without the alcohol. By now, I need it badly, and I can't sit there with a beer on my desk. They just won't let you do that at Georgia Tech. It's not that kind of an environment. I was used to sitting there with a beer on my desk all day, you know, count the money. I couldn't do that there. And even though I thought that was going to fix me, all it did was make it obvious how necessary the alcohol was for me for survival. Because I couldn't talk to people anymore because I'm not drinking, all of a sudden, this extrovert that I had been when I was in the bar business, I went back to being the painfully shy person that I was before I drank. I hated myself. I couldn't talk to people. So I ended up in a little room with a computer. That was my career, me and a computer in a little room. Because that was all I could do. And God is good. God is so very, very good because he came into my life to save my life in the form of a computer technician. There was this guy, and he wasn't in this program. He was a Christian. He was a really young fella. He was still going to school, and he was the guy that would come around and hook up your machine and show you how to work it and stuff. This was back when PCs were just coming out and nobody knew how to use one, and they were real hard to figure out how to use back in those days. And uh, we kind of struck up a conversation and started talking to each other. And uh, it turned out we lived in the same neighborhood. He came up for dinner a couple of times. I was married at this time, but my husband was never home because uh, he was the only one who really knew what the problem was. He kept telling me to come to AA. This was my second husband, the, the musician, sound man. He kept telling me to come to AA because he played in this band. And his bass player and drummer, Harry O. and Bob B., who many of you know, we're in AA, and Harry was doing pretty good in AA. And so Larry thought I should go to AA and would tell me that every Monday morning on the telephone. He never actually saw me in person. He was home when I was gone. He would leave when I was there. But every Monday he would call me and tell me what I'd done over the weekend. <laughs> They're great. Well, aren't they wonderful the way they share those experiences with you? And... Um, and, and at the end of every one of those conversations, he would say, why don't you go to AA? Harry goes to AA. Harry doesn't drink. I don't want to not drink. I want to figure out how to not get in trouble. I want to figure out how to not drink so much. That's not their program. They don't have anything to offer me. I'm not the least bit interested in let's don't drink. I am so not interested in let's don't drink. In 1977 or 1978, I was having a problem with, uh, I was having a, a car problem, a driving problem, serious driving problem. Um, I would try to drive home every night after last call. This was before I got a straight job. And, um, and I was hitting fixed objects. I was running into curves. I was running into trash cans. There aren't any people out at 5 o'clock in the morning. Thank God. <laughs> but um, I would I'd get up every morning and my car would be in various states of disarray. I got up one morning and all four tires were flat. And the guy that came to fix it said that somehow I had managed to bounce off the curbs on both sides of the road on the way home. I don't know how you do that, but 
I had figured out how somehow on my blackout the night before, and it became clear to me that I could no longer drink and drive. So I just quit driving. (laughs) It never once occurred to me to look at my drinking. I gave my car keys to my then husband and said, you now have a car. He didn't have a car at that time because he was a musician. You now have a car. And I didn't drive for six years. I did not start driving again until a month after I, I got to this program when they finally let me out of the hospital. I went and bought a car. And that's one of the freedoms that this program gave me. It talks about a new freedom and a new happiness. One of the new freedoms this program gave me was I could drive. Because I could not drink and drive. That was not happening. And, I, and nobody had to take that away from me. I didn't wait for them to take it away from me. I never got a ticket. I gave it away so that I could continue to drink. Whenever I saw anything that would threaten my right to drink, I would just give it away. Nobody had to take anything from me. I would just give it away. Just give it away. But um, this computer technician uh, got to be friends with me, and he finally said that he would no longer be my friend unless I would go see his therapist because he was tired of me telling him about my suicide attempts the night before. By this time, I was up to 27 suicide attempts. I wasn't very good at it, as you can tell. (laughs) The only thing that really would have worked, Larry, uh, my second husband, the musician, had a gun collection. He had 43 loaded weapons in the house at all times. And um, whenever he would see that I was really getting uh, lit, he would uh, lock all the guns in the safe. We had a safe. Or he would go unload all the guns. So he was forever walking around the house unloading 43 weapons. You could, just imagine. Picture this in your mind. So every time I'd go to get one of the guns, he was afraid I was going to shoot him. He didn't care if I shot myself. <laughs> he was sure I would take someone with me. Um, but uh, every time I'd go to get one of the guns, it would be unloaded. And that's the, the one thing that would have worked. So I'm so grateful that, that, you know, he saved my life over and over and over again. I would not be here today if it hadn't been for him. But he didn't stay to see what this was like. He left when I was three months sober because he hated AA. And uh, I I wish he, uh, you know, I don't wish that he'd stayed to see what it was like because I wish I was still married to him because I'm happily married now to somebody else. But I I feel badly that he never got to see what this was like because he's he's one of the people that got me here. I never would have made it without him. He literally saved my life over and over and over again. I have no idea why. But God is good, and and, um, and I did go see that therapist because I I didn't want this kid to get mad at me. You know, I'm an approval person, and I got a person in my life now, and he's going to disapprove of me if I don't go see his therapist. So I went to see this therapist, who was also a Christian, had tried to work with alcoholics before, had never got one sober, and didn't even know he had one in front of him, I don't think, in the beginning. But I went to see him, and I saw him for about a month while he was trying to figure out what he had. And he gave me pills, and I drank with the pills, and things got real interesting. And um, he finally started asking questions about my drinking and, and realized what he had on his hands. And all of a sudden, with all these suicide attempts, and now he's giving me pills, um, he told me that I had to go to the hospital. Well, I thought, you know, hospital, DeKalb General, right? So I had a, a I, I just figured I'd, you know, I'd take alcohol with me. I was taking it everywhere else. You know, I, I had a pint of grain alcohol in my briefcase with me at all times. I wasn't going anywhere without it. I might need it. 
So I just figured, well, I'll, you know, I can take it with me there. So, um, and he told me if I didn't go, he would commit me because I was a uh, danger to myself. Well, I've been a danger to myself for a long time. That didn't surprise me at all. You're a danger to yourself. Yeah, no kidding. And um, I never realized that that was a crime to be a danger to yourself. But apparently they can lock you up for that. I uh, just want to mention that to you in case any of you are planning on mentioning that to your therapist. Uh, <laughs> they can lock you up for that and, and did. Um, they took me to a hospital, but it turned out it wasn't the cab general. It was a little tiny nut house down in um, downtown Atlanta. Um, and they walked me in, and they, the door closed behind me, and uh, there was no way for me to get out of that place. It was one of those no doorknobs on your side of the door kind of places. And the windows were up real high, <laughs> real small windows. <laughs> they had checked my insurance, so they were planning on keeping me. And I'm so grateful that I had that insurance. You know, if I had not got that straight job with a good insurance, they wouldn't have had any place to put me. And I wasn't going to AA. Remember, I've already decided that. There would have been no hope for me because there would have been no place for me to go. So getting that straight job ended up being the thing that did fix me in a way. And so it's, it's when I look back and I just see how I was led, I'm just so grateful. And I was led to this wonderful place that turned out right medicine for my insanity. Uh, that was, I don't know if that's what they told me or if that's what I came up with on my own with my creative thought process, but uh, they sent me to this meeting and, uh, and the, the, other, the other patients told me, you wanna go because it's the only place in the hospital they have real coffee. <laughs> so with, with, my, uh, with my motives in the right place, being a sincere newcomer, I went to this AA meeting because they told me I had to, so of course I want the approval, got to have the approval, and the coffee. So I went for the approval and the coffee. And, uh, and I sat in uh, orange plastic chairs in the group room of this hospital, and, and you came in. I don't, know how many, I don't know how many of you were there that night. Maybe there were 20. I don't know, something like that, 20, 25 of you. It was a locked ward. I'm so grateful that there are people who will come into a locked ward facility to carry the message of this program. There was a guy there named Byron who made the coffee, and he would greet everyone at the door with a huge handshake and was, you know, so happy to see everybody. And it had one-way glass, so they could see people coming. The people that were already there could see other people coming. And I'm sitting on the back row, which is where newcomers are supposed to sit, and um, watching these people. And I would see somebody coming up the walk, and I could see everybody in the room, their face would light up. There's so-and-so, look, he's okay. You know, a lot of these people had only been out of the hospital for a short time. Some of them had a year in the program. Some of them had a couple of years. I didn't know. All I knew was that they were so happy to see each other. That's what I could see. And then they would come in the room and they all these hugs and, oh, they were so loving to one another. And I just, I thought, this is, what is this? 
It's not what I thought AA was going to be like at all. And then we sat down and we had a meeting. And they went around the room and they talked. And I don't remember specifically what was said that night, but I know in general what they talked about because I wrote it in my journal. They talked about fear, which was the only thing that I was naturally good at. They talked about loneliness. They talked about the kind of things that I didn't know people sat in rooms and talked about. They talked about feelings. They talked about, I haven't had a drink today, and I went to work, and I had this conversation with my boss, and I was so scared, but it turned out okay. And I thought, God, these people are so, you know, they talk to each other. I've never heard people talk to each other like this. Just tell everything. I've never heard anything like that. And they talked to the newcomer. Yes, it was a hospital meeting, and they said, you know, you can have this. You can have this. A guy named Joe L. said somewhere in my, well, I was in, still in the hospital, came to that meeting and said something that I will never forget. He said, I have been sober for 30 days, and I am starting to have flashes of self-esteem. And I thought, is that what you get here? I've never had that. Can you get that here? And it, the things that I heard in those meetings, I sat there at that first meeting and I thought, if I have to quit drinking to be one of these people and be with them, it will be worth it. And it has been. I didn't quit drinking because I didn't want to drink anymore. I had a pint of green alcohol with me in my briefcase when I got to the hospital. I quit drinking because I wanted to be with you. And there are many, many days today I stay sober because I want to stay with you. I found something in that room that night that I have come to understand as my higher power, but I didn't know that I'd found it that night. And the reason that I found it was because you brought it there. I've spent the last 12 years learning about what I experienced that night, that power that was in that room that night. I've spent the last 12 years trying to come to an understanding of that power, learn how to live the way I'm supposed to live according to that power, and learn how to have a personal connection with that power, and I've learned it from you. So I'm, I'm a strong, strong believer in the fellowship. I got sober because of the fellowship, and, uh, and I'm so grateful for, for the fellowship. And you have taught me how to be a different person. I am not the person that I brought here, thanks to you. The person that I brought here wouldn't even recognize me if she saw me. But the person that I brought here wouldn't be looking for me because the person I brought here didn't look up. Never looked up. You have taught me how to look up, lift my eyes to the sunlight of the spirit, and to feel that spirit in my life every day. And you've taught me how. But it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy. And some of you have had to work really hard on these old ideas of mine. They have not gone without major surgery. I held on 
uh, when it says we we tried to hold on to our old ideas, that doesn't express it strongly enough for me. I mean, when I think about some of the people who tried to offer me positive ideas and the resistance that I put up, the first, especially the first three years of my sobriety, people would, I don't know if anybody is in their first three years, and if so, if anyone has ever offered you an affirmation. But when I was, during my first three years, when people offered me affirmations, they got so much abuse back from me. So what do you, yeah, to me, the negative ideas that I had were truth. And this Pollyanna, you know, look into yourself in the mirror every day and say, I am a beautiful child of God. <laughs> what planet are you from? <laughs> I was not willing to change my ideas about me. I was going to be the only one that was going to stay sober for the rest of my life and hate me the whole time. (laughs) I was determined to do that. And I didn't realize that that was the reason that I was still sitting on the back row hating you. I didn't ever put that together. That I would come on Saturday, not even though I was very active in the fellowship, and of course I did everything you told me to do. Of course, because I need that approval. So I did the, you know, I did the this and the that and the other, and I did group service, and I sponsored people, and went to all the meetings, and did jail meetings, and hospital meetings, and that, you know, I did everything. But I would sit there on Saturday night in the back of the room at Clarkston, which is my home group and has been for some time, just, I would pick out all the people, first of all, who had husbands and boyfriends, because I didn't, and I hated them especially. And then there were those who sat in regular discussion meetings and talked about being happy, joyous, and free. They were my other favorites. And then there were the ones that sat in, in meetings and said that you weren't really sober till you quit smoking. I hated them a lot, too. And I just, you know, I would go around the room picking out people that I hated and hate them, you know, really for a few minutes. And... <laughs> And wondered why I didn't have a husband or a boyfriend or, you know, why I wasn't attracting people into my life. I still had the black cloud. I was sober, but I was holding on to that black cloud. And I was still draped in black clothing, and I still had the dark glasses. And, you know, I had, I had learned how to be physically sober, but I, I was, it had gotten to the point at three years of sobriety where I was doing it on the outside, but I wasn't feeling it on the inside again. Here we are again, something that you do on the outside, but you don't feel it on the inside. And I, if I hadn't done something about that, I wouldn't be here today. And I, I take no credit for the, for the fact that I was shown what to do, because God just puts people in my life to show me what to do. But those choices were there, and I had to make them. I had to do something about me. I had to start working the steps on who I was. And I had to start letting go of the old ideas about me and about you. The first thing I had to do uh, is I had to learn how to be a girl. Um, It was presented to me as a first step issue. A woman named Eleanor gave me a purse and told me I had to carry it. And I said, Eleanor, do I have to carry a purse to stay sober? And she said, yes. She said, you're a girl. It's honesty. It's the first step. And every time I would fall into the hands of a straight female sponsor, they would make me buy underwear with lace on it. So if somebody's doing that to you, 
you know, you, you, you may be, uh, they may be perceiving in you what they perceived in me, which was that I was so broken in that area that if I didn't heal something in my perception of myself as a woman, I was never going to get anywhere in recovery. If I couldn't get okay with myself as a woman, I was never going anywhere. I was okay with myself as an alcoholic, but I was still trying to be an it. I didn't want to be a girl because I knew I couldn't do it right. And I didn't want to have anything to do with other women in the program because I knew they didn't like me. You know women only like pretty women. Women don't want to have anything to do with ugly women. It might be contagious. <laughs> and I knew the other women didn't want to have anything to do with me. And my, I had a, a mean sponsor who made me go to the women's meeting at Clarkston. We have a women's meeting on Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, and it's wonderful. But I had to be made to go because I didn't want to have anything to do with those women. They made me get a female sponsor. This was very abusive to me. Um, I, I, and of course, there were two women in my home group at that time. I was not at Clarkston at first. When they made me get my first female sponsor, there was a woman in a mink coat, the one that later on gave me the first. And then there was this other uh, girl in blue jeans and chains and leather. So I got her, because she didn't scare me as much. And Denny, wherever you are, Denny, Denny G was my first sponsor, and I haven't seen her in about nine years. And I'm so grateful to her for what she gave me. She was a wonderful sponsor to me. And I hope wherever she is that she's still sober, and I hope if you ever see her, you'll tell her that I am. And I owe much of that to what she gave me. But... Um, you know, I had to go on with these female sponsors, and I had one that made me go to the women's meeting. They kept trying to, to point me in this direction of, of learning how to accept myself as a woman and work the steps on those issues. And I, and I finally did that at, at three years, during my fourth year. And they made me do things like curl my hair and wear colors, and I got rid of the dark glasses and got contacts so that I could see the sunlight. And, and they started teaching me about love. And I didn't know how connected these things were, that in order to be okay with me, um, I needed to, in order to be okay with you, I needed to be okay with me. I didn't realize how connected that was. I wanted to learn how to be okay with you and still hate me. And, cause I didn't, that was the one thing I didn't want to let go of. But they, they were teaching me that I had to learn how to love, period. Me, you. And in the process, I was able to receive God into my life. And I wasn't looking for that. I was looking for a husband. <laughs> I'll be honest. But being a, I had to learn how to be a girl, and I had to learn how to love. I got okay with me. I learned how, I learned a lot about love, and I started experiencing that love that was in that room that first night. I started to feel it. I started to be able to give it. I started to be able to carry it around with me. I've never been able to do that. That first three years, I could only feel it when I was with you. I couldn't take it anywhere else because I didn't have it. I wasn't a carrier. I could only barely feel it when I was with you. I learned how to feel it and give it. And I got in the flow of this love energy that I think is God, that I feel when I plug into God when I'm with you people and I started to realize the power the real power of God and of this program 
And I realized that I, I started, it healed all those old ideas that I had about myself, and they just sort of fell off of me. And I realized that those were the love-proof coating that I'd been carrying around with me that had kept any of the love from ever getting in. As they fell off, I started to realize that that's what had kept me in the cold and in the dark for so long. And I started to experience that sunlight of the spirit. I realized that love wasn't the same thing as approval. I was finally, they were teaching me this, and I finally got it. And when I got that love wasn't the same thing as approval, I realized that my parents had loved me my whole life. I didn't want love. I wanted approval. And and I was able to to receive the love of my parents for the first time in my life. And I've reestablished my relationships with them. And... And especially with my mother, and one of the things that I've started to do in the last few years is I go home every year for Mother's Day. Because my mother is happy to see me, and I never knew that. So I've been given back my parents, and thank God it was in time. They're both still alive. And I've got relationships with all of my perfect sisters. <laughs> And I have a wonderful husband. When I got here, the one thing I really wanted was the husband in this program. And I have a husband in this program today. And in in fact, that's how I know many of you. I sort of married into Marietta AA. Uh, My husband brought me to you people, and you've been so wonderful to me. I'm really, really grateful for that. One of the uh, many, many blessings that John has brought into my life. Now I'll just talk about one more blessing, and then I'll stop. Because, because I was the kind of person that I was, I knew that I could never have children. I had my tubes tied in 1980 when I was still drinking. Because I knew I could never be responsible for another human being. I was a danger to myself. And I wasn't attracting the quality of husband that I thought you really should have either. <laughs> but I, I just knew I couldn't do it. I pictured myself as being one of these mommy dearest kind of mothers. You know, I just knew I would. My nerves, you know, my nerves. Um, and when I was drinking, I had cats because they can take care of themselves. And boy, mine sure as hell had to. And then I didn't have, in early sobriety, I couldn't take care of anybody. So I didn't have any animals at all. And uh, just this year, it's been almost exactly a year now, you have made me well enough to have a dog. And I'm so grateful for that. That has been a tremendous blessing in my life, and I give you all the credit, because dogs don't take care of themselves. And I have to be consistent. And I have to be responsible. And I have to love someone even if they do it wrong. And you see, I'm still afraid you won't love me if I do it wrong. So it's just excellent for me to practice that. It's just excellent for me to practice loving some, someone even when they do it wrong. And that's how I learn that that's love. And that you love me even while I'm doing it wrong, just like God does. And if I can get that, the amount of fear that that takes out of my life is enormous. And you give me that kind of love every day. So I, I have been given much in this program and and I've only been here 12 years so when I look at you people with all the time that you've had in this program I just know if I can just be a little bit like you when I grow up that my life will be 
the kind of magical, magical life that it's been in the past several years, that it will just continue to get better and better. And I'm just so grateful to have you in my life today, to have God in my life today, and to have the, the guidance that I get in this fellowship. I started off by saying sponsors were such a gift. I have a couple of really wonderful sponsors, and one of them couldn't be here today, and she said, I know you do fine. You have God in your life, and he'll give you the words. I hope he's done that. Thank you.